when I started as a dietitian, when I was going through my training, there was such a big emphasis on avoiding or limiting saturated fats. So it was just like in the same sentence, right? Minimize saturated fat and limit foods like red meat and eggs. And so they would be sort of demonized for their saturated fat content. And I guess that comes back to the theory that high saturated fat diets increase your risk for heart disease and other sort of chronic diseases like diabetes. They would say saturated fat causes heart disease. And I often kind of like question my lecturers and I was like, oh, you know, can we go through the evidence for this? Like, can we see if this is like actually backed up by randomized controlled trials? Because I've done some research and I don't think it is. I just thought calorie counting and calorie restriction and low fat diets, I thought that was the way to lose weight, the only way really. But then I learned the science about how the body works and I realized, hang on, no, it's actually completely different. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I want to bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. This episode is going to be kicking off the series, Is Red Meat Healthy? Right. On our last series, we talked about what were the foods that humans evolved to eat, which also kind of drove at the question, but this one is much more straightforward. Uh, we have Jessica Turton on today. I have a really nice list of more guests to speak about this with hopefully some more plant-based ones. Um, right now, I have a few animal-based people. They're just the ones who have responded to me thus far, but I really hope you enjoy it. One thing before we get into it, if you have enjoyed this podcast or if you're a new listener and you like this episode, please think about supporting the show in one of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in the description. You can share this episode and write a review for the show. That would be very helpful in you know, increasing the visibility of the show. And you can buy from some of the sponsors of this episode, which is Hue Kitchen. They have incredible dark chocolate. They also have these new crackers that are you know, pizza flavored. They have some that are just sea salt. They're made of entirely paleo ingredients uh, like chia seeds. They have coconut flour, almond flour, and rosemary. They taste delicious. Um, they also have these dark chocolates with like raspberry fillings and stuff like that. So they're delicious. You'll get a discount to them. Link below. And also Thrive Market. I've talked about them a lot because I really believe in them and I use them myself. My family and I use them. Thrive Market is basically just a Whole Foods in virtual form. And you get a very large discount when you buy from them as compared to if you were to go and buy foods from a health food store right and they also deliver right to your door so highly recommended for you know non-toxic cosmetics for cleaning products for groceries for healthy packaged foods basically and they even ship uh, frozen wild-caught beef and wild wild-caught beef nope wild-caught fish and 
grass-fed beef. So check them out, you'll get a discount to them as well. The link will be in the description. Now, let's get on with the show. So today on the podcast, I have Jessica Turton, a nutritionist, dietitian, and PhD candidate with a bachelor's in applied exercise and sports science. She is the founder of Ellipse Health, a team of qualified dietitians and nutritionists, which provide personally tailored dietary interventions to people all over Australia. Jessica, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. So the question at hand today is, is red meat healthy, right? Where do we even begin, you know, trying to answer that question? Yeah, it's a funny one because I guess when I started as a dietitian, when I was going through my training, there was such a big emphasis on avoiding or limiting saturated fats. So it was just like in the same sentence, right? Minimize saturated fat and limit foods like red meat and eggs. And so they would be sort of demonized for their saturated fat content. And I guess that comes back to the theory that high saturated fat diets increase your risk for heart disease and other sort of chronic diseases like diabetes. But when I started working in clinical practice, I mean, I knew when I started my dietetics training that a lot of the stuff we were being taught needed to be questioned. So I kind of already knew that. But working in clinical practice, it's actually just so interesting, the sort of conditions you actually see people with and what their top priorities are. And most people are coming in with severe iron deficiencies. You know, they might say to you, hey, I want to lose weight and that's my top goal and that's my top priority and it's all I care about. And you look at their blood tests and their iron stores are like nine, which is terrible. You know, they're weeks away from possibly needing an iron infusion. And when you talk to them about how that iron status relates to their health conditions and their health goals, and maybe because you're low in iron, that's why you're not getting enough energy. And that's why your body's not able to liberate stored energy and burn fat. Then they start to realize, oh, okay, well, how do I get more iron? Because that's going to help me with my goals. And so like take away what the nutrition dogma is and look at the individual themselves, see what their health goals are and what are their barriers to doing that. And if you've got people with iron deficiencies, we all know, I mean, there's no doubt about it that red meat has the highest content of iron out of most foods, right? Like it's right. one of the most common foods that contain a lot of iron. Sure, things like liver and sardines and oysters have iron as well but people are more likely to eat red meat than those other foods. And then when you look at females in particular and you look at how much iron they need in a day, so like a menstruating female needs 18 milligrams of iron a day. And so they need to eat red meat almost every day, if not twice a day in order to achieve those targets. So when you just wow. look at it from that perspective, right, you're kind of like, okay, well, maybe red meat is actually really important. And why are we demonizing it? Yeah, that's fascinating. I've actually never heard it said that way about iron. Um, and I didn't also know that there's like a lot of people who are deficient in it. I mean, I knew about it for women mostly, but for men, I wasn't so I didn't I didn't know that. 
Yeah. yeah. So men and women, definitely like women are more likely to be iron deficient because their requirements are so high. Um, but I think with men as well, there's a lot of men that are kind of sucked into the dieting culture and they are desperate to lose weight or maybe a doctor's told them you need to lose weight. So they're restricting their portions. And if they've been told they're at high risk of heart disease, they're usually cutting out red meat Right. And then, yeah, we are seeing more iron deficiency. And I guess on top of that, like I work at a clinic which focuses on gastrointestinal conditions. So we see a lot of people that do have like inflammatory bowel diseases or IBS and those sorts of people just aren't absorbing the nutrients from their food very well. So they have higher nutrient requirements. And then if you're looking at someone who's got high nutrient requirements, low iron status, like they need to eat red meat and we kind of have to sort of like, there's no other option really. Right. Because, you know, you can look at something like spinach or whatever and say, yeah, that's got iron. But for these people that don't absorb their iron very well, that non-heme iron from plant foods isn't really going to help. So I think, yeah, red meat is so, so important. And I know it's been demonized and we can go through the reasons why, but I guess in clinical practice, when you're dealing with people one-on-one, -on -one, and you're starting to break apart their nutritional priorities, it's very hard to say to someone, you should avoid red meat because there isn't usually a rationale for that. That makes sense. On the flip side, myself and my team, we're usually saying to people, okay, you need to eat red meat X amount of times a week. Like we're usually giving them some kind of prescription, which causes them to focus on increasing it. Got it. Yeah. It never made sense to me. Once I started diving a little bit deeper into nutrition. Once I started following you and Dr. Pran, um, it just didn't make any sense that one of the most nutrient dense foods with, you know, things like creatine and zinc, vitamin A, it just didn't make sense that that would be something that was not good for you also. Absolutely. And the thing about saturated fat um, is kind of interesting because like I remember when I was going through my master's, you know, they would say just almost as if it was just like fat, like saturated fat causes heart disease, you know, especially in the lectures about, you know, cardiovascular diseases. And I often kind of like questioned my lecturers and I was like, oh, you know, can we go through the evidence for this? Like, can we see if this is like actually backed up by randomized controlled trials? Because I've done some research and I don't think it is. And I was basically like that difficult student <laughs> because I was questioning, right? Which is just so sad because like at uni, we should be able to question things. That's right. why we're at uni. <laughs> yeah. And so I ended up doing a research scholarship, not with the nutrition department, but with the faculty of pharmacy. And we were looking at the um, industry funded bias in nutrition research and because they were not in the nutrition department and they were looking at bias, like that was their whole focus, they were so objective. And we were doing a systematic review, looking at the bias in the studies that were linking whole grains and cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. And one thing they were doing that I thought was interesting is they were um, adjusting for confounders. And one of the confounders was saturated fat intake. And I was like, why is this a confounder? And they were like, oh, because saturated fat causes heart disease. And I was like, how? Like, who said who? <laughs> and they just kind of like, it's just brought through dogma as if it's fact, but no one's questioning it. 
So I questioned it to them and they were like, well, Jessica, if you can find proof for us that it's not actually a confounder, we'll remove it. And I did. I found the studies and I showed them it's not a confounder and they were they were blown away. They're like, this is great. Let's remove it. And that paper got published. And I think that's such a good thing because, you know, people that were on that research project were people high up in the nutrition sphere, people who were actually part of creating the dietary guidelines for Australia. They had their name on a paper that said that saturated fat was not a confounder for heart disease. So the research is out there and, you know, there's no proven link between saturated fat that is found in red meat and other animal products and heart disease. But I think, unfortunately, there's still people just practicing it as dogma and it confuses the population. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that we hear all the time. Um, But before we get into saturated fat a little bit deeper, I wanted to ask you um, about iron because we, you know, there's. I follow some vegans, I follow some plant-based advocates, and though I don't necessarily agree with everyone that I follow, I just like to get their perspective. And one of the things that I hear is, oh, you don't need red meat because of the iron since you can eat, you know, a bowl of spinach and it'll have like whatever, same amount of iron. Um, And I wanted to ask you, because I know it's a little bit different type of iron. How does, how does that type of iron compare to the iron in meat? Yeah. And I think that's where working with individuals is important because like on paper, you can absolutely like create a plant-based diet that's vegetarian or even vegan to have quote unquote enough iron on paper. What they're sort of comparing it to is the RDI, like the recommended daily intake. So can I get enough iron from my dietary sources based on the recommended daily intake? So I guess the first thing to say about that is the recommended daily intake is just a population level requirement. So for a lot of people, that is like the bare minimum they should be aiming for. And just because your diet might have the recommended daily intake of iron, absolutely no guarantee that your iron status is going to be any good. And that's due to factors like absorption problems and also nutrients that might be competing with iron and blocking iron absorption so how much of those do you have in your diet Um, and then of course things like stress and exercise like how are you using your iron and then of course we have like bleeding losses and things like that are you losing lots of iron so we can't just say because your iron or your diet has the right amount of iron quote unquote the right amount of iron that you're going to be okay in terms of nutritional status so that's one factor to consider The second thing is just looking at the type of iron in plant foods versus animal foods. And we know that animal foods contain a type of iron called heme iron. And by definition, this is the most bioavailable source of iron. And non-heme iron, which is found in plants, it's also found in animal foods as well, but it's found in plants. Um, It's the only source of iron in plants is what I'm trying to say non-heme iron is not as bioavailable. So you actually need two to three times as much to get that iron that your body does need. So they would be the biggest differences. And then you can go into lots of different other, you know, factors as well. Like spinach contains oxalates and plant foods contain certain phytates and things like that. And they will bind to the iron, preventing it from absorbing. So you've just got all these factors with like iron in plant foods that make it less bioavailable. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you should just not count it. That doesn't mean that it's not important. It just means that we have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. Because if I had a patient come in who was vegan and their iron stores were fantastic, I would be like, great, good on you. Keep going with what you're doing. Like you're doing a great job. But if they came in and they were like eating all this plant-based iron and their iron stores were through the floor, I would have that serious conversation with them. And I would say, do you think you can improve your nutritional status with plants? Clearly not based on what's going on here. And perhaps we need to consider bringing in some animal foods. So, yeah, I mean, there's just such a big difference. But the thing is, too, like there are individuals out there who can absorb iron really well. And they're the minority, like they are absolutely the minority, Um, especially people with chronic disease and any health conditions, like they're not absorbing their nutrients very well. But there are some people who can absorb iron well from plant foods. And they're usually the people that are like speaking out saying, you know, like, I don't have to eat meat. I'm fine. I can be an athlete and be on a vegan diet. But that is not the average person. And again, I think that really confuses people. The everyday person, they look on social media, they see that red meat is bad. They see that they should eat spinach to get their iron. And then they end up with iron deficiencies and other chronic diseases as a result. And it's really sad, I think. It's really, it's misinformation. Some um, people that we work with, especially with inflammatory bowel disease, like they, they have bowels that might be bleeding. So they are losing iron that way. And then also too, like women with heavy periods, they're losing a lot of iron. And then another big um, thing that we see in the weight loss sphere is people who are just doing a lot of exercise and requiring a lot of oxygen and energy from their body. And they're doing this while their iron stores are quite low. And it's a very stressful and inflammatory experience. And what was kind of the turning point for you? Because you mentioned that throughout your um, kind of like your learning, your undergraduate studies and beyond, you were learning that red meat was bad for you and that it went hand in hand with reducing your saturated fat intake. So why, why did you feel, you know, such an urge to kind of question that where I feel like a lot of people just kind of take it, you know, at face value? Yeah. Yeah. Actually I did a a double degree. So the undergrad was exercise and sports science and the master's was nutrition and dietetics. And in the undergrad, because it was separate to nutrition, there was no dogma associated with it. It was kind of just like science, biochemistry. And if there was any kind of translation into practice, it was from an exercise perspective and a fuel utilization perspective. Um, So in that degree, I really learned that, you know, the way the body functioned um, is quite logical. And the way the body burns fats and the way the body burns glucose and the storage of those things, And that already caused me to kind of question the nutrition dogma. Um, So for example, like when I was going into my bachelor degree, like I struggled with a binge eating disorder and I was actually quite overweight. And so I was just being selfish and I was trying to figure out, well, how do I lose weight? And how am I going to have the answers in my uni degree? And so when I learned about the role of insulin in an exercise biochemistry lecture, and I learned that you can bring insulin levels down and teach your body to burn fat as an energy source by reducing the glucose input. 
Like it's so simple and it makes so much sense to us now. But at the time, I just thought calorie counting and calorie restriction and low fat diets. I thought that was the way to lose weight um, and the only way really. But then I learned the science about how the body works and I realized, hang on, no, it's actually completely different. And so I implemented, I guess, a lower carb, higher fat diet for myself. And I saw amazing results, like not just physically, but mentally as well. And then I guess as well, before I went into my master's degree, my dad had a heart attack. He was put in hospital and he was diagnosed with type two diabetes. And so I just dove into the literature and I was like, well, how can I help my dad? Now he's got type two diabetes and he needs to improve his blood sugars. So I just looked through all the research that there was done on type two diabetes and found that low carbohydrate diets that were not restricted in saturated fats were the most effective dietary approach for improving diabetes management, including reducing their risk of heart disease. And so I guess I already had that realization before I went to uni. And I guess I thought that uni was going to be up to date <laughs> with all that as well. And I thought, oh, okay, we can have these open discussions about the research. And I was excited. Like I was excited to have a debate with my friends at uni and with the lecturers and talk about different approaches to nutrition but that's not how it worked at uni. It was like, this is the way, there's no questioning. You had to learn what they wanted to teach you, which was just all about the guidelines. And it was all very black and white. Like, you know, there's no individualization or personalization. It was just like, this is the only way. And so, yeah, that was very disappointing. And I kind of just had to like, have these two sections of my brain where I was like, okay, this is what I know to be true from the research. And this is what I have to write in my exams to pass this degree. Wow. That's tough. Um, and it's something that I actually hear kind of often. I, I interviewed Dr. Ailey Cohen, who um, is a traditional MD, and she said the same thing about medical school. She said that they're actually told 50% of what you learn is going to be wrong over the next few years. Um, so it's kind of amazing to think like how far behind are they lagging in like the real world information? Yeah, I think like, you know, a lot of the information they give in terms of just like basic science is really spot on and like really accurate and really interesting. And I think like a lot of dietitians actually become dietitians because they're scientists, like they like science and they like how the human body functions. But there is a huge disconnect that exists between how the body functions and then what we recommend people. And no one explains that disconnect or why it's there. And I just think, I guess, at uni, or at least in my degree, we weren't, I guess, encouraged to question things. And we weren't encouraged to have debates. And I think that's probably the issue. Yeah, that's that's kind of a sad thing, too. I think, fortunately for me, I'm in an, um, a college right now where we have really small class sizes. So we are kind of encouraged to do that. We are encouraged to have like more discussion based where I feel like if it were larger classes, like 200 kids or something, that might be kind of lost there. Absolutely, for sure. So now I kind of want to get into the link between red meat and disease. You already mentioned a few things um, like cardiovascular disease. Uh, we mentioned diabetes. We mentioned, um, you know, cholesterol. Um, and so kind of 
paint the picture of what is kind of the most the most common things that you hear when you're uh, consulting with people when you're meeting with people um what are they what are their kind of like preconceived notions about red meat and disease yeah yeah mainly that red meat contains saturated fat and saturated fat is bad for us because it's going to increase our cholesterol and when we have high cholesterol we are going to have a heart attack so that's people's biggest fear um, and what i hear most commonly I guess the other thing as well is people just um, labeling red meat as bad and telling me how good they are because they don't eat it. But then when I ask them, well, why don't you eat it? Or why do you think it's bad? They actually can't give me an answer. It's just so ingrained into them that it's bad. They don't even know why. And then they're just like sitting there like, oh, I don't actually know. And like, even that to them is a bit of, sh of a shock to reflect right. on their diet and question their own diet, right? Um, but yeah, it's mainly the saturated fat increases cholesterol, which increases your risk of heart disease. That's mainly the, the thing that people worry about. And I guess secondary to that too, because I do work with a lot of people that have inflammatory bowel disease, or they've got a history of bowel cancer in their family or something like that. Um, cancer is another thing people are worried about. And I guess, you know, there are links between red meat and cancer, but I guess the question is, are those links actually valid? Um, and what sort of science are we using to rely upon for those associations? So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways we could go here. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I want to dive deeper into like saturated fat and why it may not be causal. I know I've heard um, some people in like the ancestral health community talk about how there's some issues with uh, studies that are used to kind of say that saturated fat causes heart disease. Could you kind of briefly talk about um, what those are? Yeah, yeah. Um, so like, I think there's two things to talk about here because like meat containing saturated fat like that is true meat does have saturated fat but I think the thing that gets lost in this conversation is that when especially even when you look at the dietary guidelines for example so one of the guidelines is to limit your intake of saturated fats including foods like and then they go on to say like pastries sausage rolls party pies muffins biscuits red meat eggs and it's like hang on a second. <laughs> These foods are not the same. Like there's so many differences going on here. And so I think first of all, just like lumping meat and some of our other minimally processed animal foods into the same bucket as other highly ultra processed foods and just calling them all saturated fats. I think that's problem number one. And I do think that stems from the research a bit because the types of studies that are done that scientists or nutritionists or the government whoever used to bring that link between meat and saturated fat causing heart disease the types of studies they use are really large observational studies or cohort studies they're basically um studies where they just like take a big population and that's what makes them look really impressive because it's like this study had a hundred thousand people so it must be like really valid data they take this huge population and they basically just like follow them over time what they usually do is they'll give them like a food questionnaire or something at the beginning of the study and then they will assess their diet based on that so usually it's some type of like questionnaire where people go through and they tick the box and they tell the researchers what they eat. 
And then they follow these people up for 20 years, 30 years, however long, and they see who gets heart disease and what, you know, do they have a heart attack? Do they have a stroke? Whatever. Um, who gets cancer? Who's fine? You know, this, that, whatever. So then at the end of the study, once they've got all that data, then they start to draw associations between what people told the researchers they ate um, and who got heart disease. And from these studies, they draw really weak associations, like really weak, between red meat intake and your risk of heart disease. And like there are so many problems with these types of studies. And these types of studies, the epidemiological studies, were never, ever, ever designed and still aren't to prove a causal link. Like they were never designed to prove causation. Yet for some reason in nutrition, that's how we are using them. So these studies, if they were to find an association between red meat and cardiovascular disease, say, what they should have then done is a randomized control trial or some type of clinical trial to then actually go and prove that link or disprove it. And there have been no controlled clinical trials that actually have been able to prove that increasing your intake of saturated fat causes heart disease. And the same for red meat, increasing your intake of red meat causes heart disease or cancer for that matter. So yeah, lots of flaws in that research. And I think the thing as a dietitian that I would wanna highlight for people listening is when you fill out those questionnaires, like at the beginning of the study, it's they're basically asking you things like, okay, over the last six months, did you eat mangoes? If so, how many did you eat? Over the last six months, did you have pizza? Did it have meat on it? Did it have vegetables on it? Did you eat sausage rolls? And so like I ask clients every single day, what did you have to eat yesterday? And for a lot of people, it's so hard for them to even remember what they ate yesterday, let alone how many sausage rolls they've eaten over the last six months. So the actual data that they're using is self-report data, but very, very poor quality as well. It's very hard for people to remember that kind of information. And then also too, they're assuming that those people's diets did not change throughout the 20 years, throughout the 30 years. They're just assuming everyone kept eating the same thing. So yeah, it's very difficult to actually say that that research is actually supporting a recommendation to tell people to reduce saturated fat or heart disease um, or red meat, sorry. Right. So there are a few issues with the research, with the epidemiological research. So one is that it doesn't differentiate between processed meat and unprocessed meat. So meat in its whole form. Um, and the food questionnaires are kind of iffy. They're kind of not so reliable. And then one other thing I've heard is something called the healthy user bias, which is where typically people who follow the, you know, the normal recommendations of limit your saturated fat intake, uh, limit your red meat intake, they are also the ones, if they follow those guidelines, they also tend to do exercise. Um, and they also tend to not smoke and things like that. Um, so I wanted to ask you in terms of uh, like colon cancer, um, you know, the World Health Organization has uh, classified red meat as a type 2A carcinogen, right, which is probably carcinogenic. So are there similar issues in the data that they used to come up with that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The exact same things you just brought up then. It's all epidemiological studies. And we're not trying to say that they're not useful at all. Like they're right. still useful to generate a hypothesis, but then you need to go and do the clinical trials. 
And yeah, no clinical trials have actually proven that red meat increases your risk of colon cancer. And those studies, you know, tend to, there are some studies out there that actually show there's no link between red meat and colon cancer, but they don't get cited. Like they don't get continued and brought forward. Um, and I think this is the case for like a lot of, um, a lot of different clinical populations, like even type two diabetes, when I was researching, when my dad had a heart attack and I was researching, okay, what are the effective treatments for type two diabetes? Looking at the guidelines and looking at what they cite, they just leave out so much research and then new guidelines come through and they cite the previous guidelines and then only take in a few extra new research studies. So if the original guidelines left out a whole bunch of studies, they just get lost. No one's ever bringing them forward. And I think that's the case um, for this as well. Like there were some research studies, some clinical trials that had been done that didn't show an association between red meat and colon cancer, but they just get lost and no one talks about them, um, which is really unfortunate. So we do need more people like for example, Nina Teicholz, she wrote an incredible book looking at a lot of the research that was done that was really just like hidden and missed in terms of red meat and saturated fat and kind of just bringing it to the surface again. So we can have that more balanced discussion and maybe revisit some of these questions, like exactly what you're doing on this podcast. Is red meat healthy? Because I think we have to have those questions and not just um, assume that all the guidelines are 100% correct. Right. Um, and just to say with the colon cancer too, like that's a really damaging recommendation in my opinion to say that red meat is carcinogenic for people at risk of cancer because they're usually also the same people that have inflammation in their guts who also then don't absorb iron very well. So they're already at risk of iron deficiency based on that, based on the underlying inflammation. And then you tell them or you make them really fearful of red meat. Now they've cut it out altogether. And you're, I guess, just weighing up the risk versus benefit. Like is the harm of eating red meat actually that strong that now we're going to end up with an iron deficiency and just accept all the consequences of that? And I would say definitely not, especially for minimally processed red meat. Right. It seems to be with most things, a case of risk benefit ratio. And if, you know, we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast, if something is so nutrient dense that it's just like scales of kind of rating food in terms of their micronutrient density and red meat and organ meats always tend to be like near the top. Right. And so if that's the case, then why are you ignoring that evidence, but saying that it's like really bad for you with some other evidence, right? I think that's the biggest argument is that like um, red meat, as you just said, is one of the most nutrient dense foods, but I genuinely think people don't even know that. And I would also put dietitians in that category. I don't actually think dietitians realize how nutrient dense red meat is. And it comes back to the fact that we just get told right from the get-go, it's lumped in that basket. It's not good for us, limit it. Yeah, it's a source of protein, but you don't really get taught much else than that. And because too, there's such a focus on increasing your um, like bread and your cereal and your milk, all those things get fortified with iron. So it's like dietitians just think like, that's where you get your iron, don't need the red meat. 
And I guess it's oversimplified a little bit. And so when you actually spend the time looking at the nutrient breakdown of meat, you can actually see is even when you're comparing it to vegetables or whatever, red meat is super high in so many nutrients, not just iron and even things like potassium. Like if I say to my patients, where do you get potassium? They all just say vegetables, fruit. But red meat is extremely high in potassium and often contains more potassium than some of our plant foods. And people just do not know this information. It's out there, as you say, it's out there and it's kind of like not debatable either. Like we have these really good nutrient databases. We know what nutrients are in foods, but that information needs to be spread far and wide. And I think in practice, that's what we do a lot. We step away from the dogma. We don't give our patients diet labels or anything like that. We look at what their nutritional priorities are, which nutrients they need more of, which foods or nutrients they might need less of. We explain to them why those nutrients are important, where you get them in foods. And it tends to just fall into this kind of like real food diet that contains animal foods. Like that's kind of like how it always falls even though we're not intending to move in that direction. Are controlled trials, um, because you mentioned that there aren't really any good controlled trials that are showing uh, red meat having a negative impact on health. Um, Is that because they're just too difficult to do? Would they be too much money? Like what are the obstacles there? Well, I think it's partly because, you know, the the epidemiological studies have been given so much weighting that it's almost like proven, like, as you said, how red meat has been just like labeled as this carcinogen, as if like, that's just fact. I think researchers are thinking, okay, well, what can I do that's novel? And they almost think like those studies have been done. And also too, like what you're saying about funding is very true because like cereal companies and like grain companies, like they will fund these big studies that show like the health benefits of grains and carbohydrates and kind of demonize your foods like saturated fats and red meats. Like that works really well for them as from a business perspective. So they put a lot of money into that kind of research And I guess there just like isn't the same funding going into research for red meat. So if you're a researcher and you're trying to look at what to study, generally what you do is you look at where the funding is, then you apply for funding and then your research is kind of based on who funded you, like what they want you to do kind of thing. And so I'm doing a clinical trial at the moment, looking at low carbohydrate diets for people with type one diabetes completely unfunded we have some small funding from some people who are actually like in the research study who just want this to work because they're really passionate they want to study this particular area but we didn't I guess look for funding first and then have our research bias based on that funding we did this out of like passion and a need and obviously part of my PhD to answer a particular research question So is another part of that block just kind of scientific dogma where, you know, you, as you've said, people think that it's already proven. And so they're not kind of, they have like a mental block and saying, oh, maybe it's not actually proven. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like people are not questioning the science like they should. And I think part of that too is the clinical guidelines for different diseases as well like if you look at the clinical guidelines for like um 
cancer, bowel, bowel cancer or whatever, and you look at how that patient should be managed, it's just thrown in there as like a fact that they should be on a low saturated fat diet, they should limit their intake of red meat. It's not kind of like in there for debate or anything like that. So even like researchers and practitioners, they just like keep on putting out that advice because that's what it says there. And then, as I said, when new guidelines come along, they just they bring all of that forward. They don't actually question what was in the guidelines. Um, yeah, you need some, I guess, uh, like crowdfunding or something like that. So like non-biased resources um, so that scientists can do these sorts of studies because they are extremely expensive, these kind of clinical trials. Like good clinical trials cost millions and millions of dollars to run. And so I think it's a big block for these studies. And I think the studies that have been done, like if we just look at some of the studies in type 2 diabetes, for example, they are like if we look at low-carb diets, and if we look at how they actually run the low-carb diets and what they actually recommend to patients, they generally recommend patients eat as much of the recommended foods as they want. So it's called an ad libitum low-carb diet. And the recommended foods include things like red meat. So here you've actually got like a good amount of studies in the type 2 diabetes space that recommend these patients eat as much red meat as you want you look at their outcomes and you can actually see that the low carb diet group improves significantly in terms of their glycemic control, their weight and their cardiovascular risk factors. So even though it's all like, yeah, low carb diets do this, I would also say, well, what was it in the low carb diet that improved their outcomes? Was it the low carb? Sure, possibly. But was it also the fact they increased their intake of animal foods, which are very nutrient dense? And did they improve their nutritional status? And did they improve the quality of their diet? Like there's so many other factors at play. So I think even though we don't directly have many clinical trials investigating red meat itself, we can still look at the data from other studies and say, well, hang on a second. This is showing us that red meat can be a part of a healthy diet that improves these clinical conditions. So you're saying that part of the success of the ad libitum eating with the um, low carb diets could be due to the fact that you're including more of those animal products and like red meat, for example, it's really hard to overeat on red meat, right? It's incredibly satiating. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we know people that have type two diabetes have increased risk of nutrient deficiencies. One of the nutrient deficiencies that they are more at risk of is vitamin B12. The reason for that is because they're all taking metformin. Metformin reduces your absorption of B12 in the gut. B12 is essential for your nervous system. So B12 creates the myelin sheath, which coats all of your little nerves so that they function properly. One of the consequences or side effects of type 2 diabetes is peripheral neuropathy, so nerve damage. And yes, of course, that can happen when high levels of sugar damage your nerves, but it can also happen from a B12 deficiency. And I think once someone gets slapped the label of type 2 diabetes, it's like, that's all that matters. Like no one looks at them as an individual anymore. Like no one says, okay, let's check your nutrient status. Let's see how you're going in your other areas of life. It's all about your blood sugar. It's all about your medications. It's all about your diabetes. Like that is you now, that's your identity. And so I think that there's a lot of things to say about how different factors 
in these low carb diets, including increased nutrient status are playing a role in the success. You mentioned that with iron, for example, you have like the people that are touting kind of a vegan diet or more plant foods that are iron rich or because they're one of the anomalies in terms of how well they can absorb that iron. Um, and so I know that with many other aspects of nutrition, you have that kind of bio-individuality, right? So are there any kind of other, um, other examples of this with red meat? Like for example, how someone responds to saturated fat and cholesterol, could it be like more or less beneficial for someone to have saturated fat and cholesterol? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I definitely think so. Um, what we tend to do in our clinic is we will do LDL subfraction analyses on everyone, um, or at least those people that are at risk of heart disease, because it's a relatively expensive test. So it's a test that not just looks at your standard cholesterol particles, but it actually breaks down the different size LDL particles, because we know that LDL itself, so total LDL isn't actually associated with heart disease. However, small dense LDL, or um, some people call it atherogenic LDL, does have a much stronger association with heart disease. And so I guess there isn't a lot of research that use the LDL subfraction analysis as a bit of a proxy or a marker. Most people just go for the cheaper method, which is your standard cholesterol panel. So I guess in clinical practice, we want to measure as many outcomes as we can, because we don't want to be in a position where we improve somebody's blood sugar, but then their risk of heart disease gets worse. Like we don't want to be responsible for that or contribute to that. We want people to improve in all areas. So by measuring all these outcomes, we can see how people respond to their diets and we can make tweaks along the way. So if we're doing a diet that might be an ad libitum low carb diet to improve someone's blood sugars, and three months later, we test their LDL subfractions. And let's say they don't improve. So they've still got small dense LDL or perhaps the small dense LDL actually gets worse. Firstly, we actually check, okay, is that person doing the diet we recommended? Cause that's really important to check before you go blame it. But secondly, we might need to make some tweaks. So we might need to improve the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. We might need to have more omega-3 fats in the diet because that can help protect oxidation and damage from the cells. So for example, we might replace some of the red meat with fish, not because we're saying the red meat is terrible for them, but they just need more fish. They need more omega-3s, right? So we've got to boost those things up and that might further improve. And then the same thing is true for like, you know, saturated fats. Sometimes you have clients that are just like drinking cream, <laughs> you know, they just take it to the extremes. They love it. And, you know, it could actually be helpful for them at the beginning. It can help regulate your appetite, especially if you're dealing with emotional eating, binge eating, like getting in a lot of fats can really help you get back in tune with hunger and satiety. But for some people, they don't really know how to listen to their body. So they just keep doing all these fats. And so at the three-month mark, you might see, okay, they've still got a bit of oxidation present. Let's see if we can pull back on some of those fats because, in fact, when you ask them, they're not hungry anymore. They're just eating those fats out of habit. And if they've got some extra body weight that they can use for energy, then it's, you know, it's okay to pull back on some of those fats. And they're happy to do it at that point as well. You know, they're looking for that guidance. So I think it's very true that people are going to respond to different ways. And the thing is, we don't actually have that like hard data that says, okay, if someone has elevated small dense LDL, it's because of the saturated fats. We don't actually have that data. 
which is why we have to keep measuring outcomes every three months, keep tweaking things and just see what we can do to make it work for that individual because everybody responds differently. Right, right. Yeah, I know like personalized medicine right now is is kind of becoming the future and the one size fits all recommendations are kind of going in the trash where they belong, I think. Um, and going off of that, there's been one kind of critique, major critique of how, um, well, of the lipid hypothesis kind of in general, right, which is that looking at like narrowly just focusing on LDL as the one marker for heart disease is kind of like missing the forest for the trees, right? You're not looking at if they get good sleep, if their triglycerides are good, if their HDL is good, if their body fat is low, if they're exercising, right? Um, so I think these are also kind of some things that play into that as well. It is actually really frustrating because we try to work as a multidisciplinary team with patients' GPs, but patients' GPs will see the LDL go up a little bit and they just freak out. Statins. And <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Statins, like this is the way. Or oh, they tell them to go off the diet. And even if, like, we've had patients where we have literally reversed their type 2 diabetes, they're now not taking any diabetes medication, HbA1c has normalized, insulin levels have come down, all their nutrient markers have improved, and their LDL subfractions have moved from a type B, which is atherogenic, to type A, which is no additional risk of heart disease. So all of these wonderful things have occurred. The patient feels amazing. They're so happy. They go to their GP, really excited and proud of themselves. And because the LDL has popped up just a little bit, their GP just rips them to shreds and tells them that everything they're doing is terrible. They're going to have a heart attack. Like they use really fearful language. And I'm not talking about all GPs, but some GPs, right? right. And they just want to push that statin on patients. And then patients get really confused because they trust their GPs. Like they might've been having the same GP for 10 years and they trust this person and they believe that they're right, but they also know what they experience and they know how they feel so now they're kind of like the middleman between what they feel is right and what works for their body and what their gp is telling them and that's a confusing place for patients to be in yeah absolutely i mean it's something that i experimented with my parents have have also um, experienced like when i did a ketogenic diet and i went in and my ldl was a little too high and my doctor was like oh my god you must be eating like terrible fried foods you need to start eating like more plant foods and i did try like the vegetarian approach and it just like ugh, it like really didn't work for me it was like bloating it was like just uncomfortable digestion I felt really, really crappy, even though like my ego was on top of the world because I felt like I was doing things that were supposed to be healthy, but it, it wasn't working. It wasn't working. Yeah. It's yeah. funny too, because like, if you actually look into some of the reasons why LDL increases, one of the reasons that LDL increases is because someone's actively losing weight. And so irrespective of low carb, high carb, low fat, high fat, whatever, if you are actively losing weight, your LDL can go up. The reason for that is because you're transporting more fat around the body and to transport fat around the body, you need LDL. Interesting. So you can, yeah. So you can have patients that are actively losing weight, their LDL is high and their, pay, their GPs put them on a statin because they think, oh no, this is bad. They don't actually ask their patients, are you actively losing weight? They also don't ask their patients, do you currently have an infection or a virus or did you injure yourself recently? Because they are all possible reasons for LDL to go up. 
Right, right. Yeah. And that's something that I, I looked into a little bit more. I don't know if you're familiar with Dave Feldman's work uh, with cholesterol, um, but that's what I learned as well. When I looked into it, it's like, why am I someone who's like, he calls them like hyper responders, like people who, when they eat like more fat, their cholesterol kind of tends to skyrocket a little more than normal. Um, even though they're kind of like lean and, and pretty healthy and they exercise a lot. Um, so it's kind of, it's really fascinating. There are so many ways that the body can adapt to different states. And just because, you know, high LDL in one instance, you might have like some sort of disease and LDL, high LDL in another instance might be like totally different. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I don't think um, we necessarily have strong evidence to say that if your LDL has gone up, that that is like bad. I don't think the evidence right. is strong enough to say that. However, we also cannot say like conclusively either that high LDL is like benign. Like we can't say that either, right? So I think that what we need to do in the meantime, while we are waiting for the research in this area to improve and get better and not just look at those big, large observational studies, but to do more clinical research, um, while we're waiting for it, what we need to do as practitioners is just measure all of the outcomes measure all of the cardiovascular disease outcomes. Because as you said, LDL is just one risk factor for heart disease, and it's a very weak risk factor at that. Things like HbA1c and homocysteine are much stronger and much better predictors of heart disease than cholesterol. So we will always measure those for our patients and we will always improve those things. And that just kind of helps us make a better assessment and we'll measure outcomes regularly because we know for people that these things can change over time and it's not just because of their diet. Like they could undergo a really stressful year at work or like with COVID and everything going on, like there's a lot of stress that can influence what they eat, but it can also influence their biochemistry and how their body functions. So we need to make sure that we're regularly checking in on people and also teaching them how to self-monitor going forward as well. The last question I wanted to ask you, you mentioned homocysteine, and that's been something, this is my very rough understanding, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, something that's been said about red meat is that it has a high amount of methionine, which could lead to higher amounts of homocysteine. And that's been linked to kind of like, like high blood pressure and things like that. So what is, you know, how do you kind of um, go about thinking about homocysteine and its relation to red meat consumption? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've heard that too. And also the thing is with the homocysteine is the main, and this isn't the only reason, but the main reason we see high levels of homocysteine in people. And just so everyone knows, if your homocysteine is high, that would increase your risk of heart disease, but also things like stroke um, and also some cancers and also things like migraines, allergies. Like there's a lot of things that are related to elevated homocysteine. Um, but interestingly, a lot of the times people have elevated homocysteine is because they have a folate deficiency and folate and other B vitamins are extremely important for recycling homocysteine and we need to recycle homocysteine. That's important for keeping homocysteine low. But then if you look at the function of folate, folate is essential for DNA metabolism. So if you don't have proper DNA metabolism, you can see how things like your risk of cancer can increase. And so folate is a super important nutrient and the food that contains the most folate is liver. Liver. So an animal food, even like beef liver, chicken liver, 
that is the highest in folate. So you can get huge amounts of folate by including some organ meats in your diet. You can also get folate from like eggs as well. And there's certain vegetables and nuts and seeds that have folate. But yeah, predominantly it's a folate deficiency, increasing homocysteine. And again, if you look into the research, there are very strong links between folate deficiencies and heart disease, but no one talks about it. It just gets lost because there's this big nutrition dogma. There's these like black and white things that are thrown around, like red meat is bad, saturated fat is bad. And the actual, the other things, like the important things, like our nutrients that we need to live, we forget about those. And we forget about the risk of what happens if they're low and how can that relate to heart disease or diabetes or just mood in general. And then how would we go about kind of rectifying this whole idea that red meat is, you know, the fact that red meat's been kind of demonized? How do we go about like, yeah, kind of painting it in a new light? Yeah, I think it has to come from a nutrient density perspective. It just has to, Um, because like it is by far the best source of iron and no one can deny that. And when you actually like, look at your iron status, you look at your food sources of iron and based on your own individual iron status, if you need to increase those food sources, it's the red meat that you need to increase. And it's the easiest one to increase to get the iron that your body needs. And it's the most effective one too. Like I've seen patients, I don't recommend iron supplements unless I really, really have to, but I see patients that go on iron supplements themselves, like maybe their doctors told them to or something like that. And their iron just doesn't move. It doesn't move. Like it, they're taking these huge, large doses of iron and their iron, like it might not get worse, but it doesn't get better. And so they're only just kind of like getting by and they've got really bad GI upset from the iron supplements because it can lead to constipation and inflammation in the gut. And then we have our population who's happy to eat red meat. So we tell them, okay, you need to increase your intake of red meat. This is how much you need. We also tell them about other iron sources too that aren't red meat, just so that they've got a variety. And their iron goes up. It just goes up. There's a few people, like if they're heavily pregnant or they've got really bad IBD, that it is still very hard to get their iron up and they may need an iron transfusion. But for the majority of people, red meat works the best. And so like, I guess that's the other thing, like we can, like we can try different methods if people really are averse to eating red meat, but they'll see their own results on their blood test. They'll see they've put in all this hard work, taking their supplements or eating all their spinach and it doesn't necessarily move. So I think the nutrient density part of it is the way that we're going to actually paint red meat in a new light And I think also too, just highlighting to people that minimally processed foods contain a natural balance of saturated fat, monounsaturated fat, and polyunsaturated fat, right? It's not like red meat is just pure saturated fat. It does have a mix of the three. And there's a very big difference between the fats that we find in red meat and eggs and even fish And then the fats that we find in fried chicken, (laughs) party pies, pastries, like they are two completely separate foods. And we can talk about the differences between the two. I always tell my patients like how they affect your body differently. We cannot lump them in the same basket. 
So I think just teaching people that sort of stuff, like that's a really easy way for them to be like, you know what? I have been lumping all red meat together in the same basket and I have been putting it together with the pies and uh, the muffins and all of that. And maybe I do need to start thinking about minimally processed red meat differently. So how does um, processed red meat compare to unprocessed red meat and how it affects your body? Well, I think the biggest thing is what is the processed red meat coming with? Because it's usually like, as we said, take a sausage roll, for example, it's wrapped in pastry and the pastry has usually got some type of like seed oil, like canola oil or something that's high in omega-6. The pastry often has very refined carbs. That's how it's made. And then the meat itself is mixed with flours and oils and sugar and preservatives. And so you don't even really deal with red meat at this point. Like it might be 40% red meat, 60% everything else. And I would probably say the biggest issue with the processed foods is the refined carbs that a lot of people just cannot tolerate, especially people with insulin resistance and the excessive amounts of omega-6 that come in those fats or oils that they use for processed food. So omega-6 is an essential fat. Like we need omega-6, but we only need a small amount of it. And we get a really good balance of omega-6 and omega-3 in red meat, like pure unprocessed red meat and in fish and in eggs. But the minute we start incorporating processed foods that have those high omega-6 refined oils, now you get huge amounts of omega-6 coming in your diet. And we know that excessive amounts of omega-6 is linked to insulin resistance, inflammation, obesity, heart disease. So that's what you're not told. You're not told what that processed red meat is coming with and why those things could be damaging. Got it. Is there anything with the processed red meat itself that could be damaging? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Like a lot of people question, you know, whether um, like, the nitrates or like the salt or whatever that's being added to the meat could be causing a problem because it's still red meat. Um, you might also argue that they're using really poor quality red meat. So where animals have been raised in a really bad environment and they're highly stressed and they've been fed a really poor diet because it tends to be like cheaper meat that we get. So there has to be a way that they make it cheaper, right? So you've got that argument, which could make maybe the quality of the fats in the red meat poor or something like that. Okay. So that is definitely possible. But then also too, like it's the nitrate nitrite argument, which is generally like quite a big one where people say like things like bacon, you know, they've got to pay double or triple to get their nitrate free bacon. And we need to be worried about the effect of those things on our risk of cancer and our general health as well. Um, but I guess the only thing I have to say there is that there's more nitrates and nitrites in vegetables than there is red meat. So if we're telling people to avoid the processed red meat because of that reason, you're kind of also telling them to stop eating salad as well. So it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Interesting. I never knew that. Yeah. Uh, well, that's really everything that I had for today. I think this is an amazing start to the series. Um, thank you very much for your time. Before we go, I wanted to ask people, uh, ask you where people could find out more about your work. Okay. Um, so I have like an online private practice called Ellipse Health. Um, and so I've got a website and things like that. And there's lots of videos on there. There's like articles and resources that people can have a look at. 
And my team and I also do online consultations too. So that's um, www.ellipsehealth.com.au. And I'm also doing a PhD as well at the University of Sydney. Um, so I'm running a clinical trial looking at low carb diets for type one diabetes. We're still recruiting. By the time this is out, we're probably no longer recruiting. Um, but if people are interested, they can just find me on the University of Sydney website and they can read about my study and my PhD thesis. Or you can just contact me on Instagram, which is Jessica Turton underscore dietitian. Awesome. I'll link to all those in the show notes for people to find those. Thank you very much for your time. That's fine. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, How Modern Medicine, the Media, and the Mundane Have Destroyed Our Health and How to Move Back Towards Optimal Health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter, books. And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.